Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Thank you for breaking that awkward, silent moment. I do appreciate it. It's good to see you guys. We were uh, away for Thanksgiving. We went upstate to our place of origin outside of Rochester, a little town called Hilton, um, and it was quite refreshing. One of the um, one of the the highlights of the trip. You ever? I mean, in the movie Christmas Vacation. And I don't. I'm not endorsing it. I don't remember it. It was a long, long time ago that I saw it. But there's a scene where he's in the attic and he's stuck up there, and he, you know, there's all the memorabilia of times past. It actually happened to us. Not not the getting stuck in the attic part, but. Um, my, my mother-in-law cleaned out her attic, and, and she found um, pretty much everything we owned when we got married. You know, we left it up there when we moved down here, and we hadn't seen it in like 20 years. And it was so uh, amazing to go through all of that. We've been married, it'll be 22 years this year. And so uh, to see that it was like a different life, you know, all that, all that stuff. Um, and the reason I bring it up is because in it, I, I found a bank statement um, that, that was for myself for the month before our wedding. So it was like we married on December 31st, so it was the December statement of 1999. Uh, and, and so we got married on the last day of that month, and my bank balance, when I said I do, was minus $4.84. And, and that was it. There was no other account. There was no college money that someone put away for me. Like that was, I don't even think I had a car at that moment. When we got married, we had whatever she had and her 1984 Ford Taurus station wagon. And that's where we began. And, uh, and, and so like to, to go through that and then to see now what God has done in 22 years. To have started from that place and now to look up here and see two of my kids on the worship team, you know, I'm not going to tell you which two of the people they were, um, but it wasn't Andrew and it wasn't JJ, it was, it was two of the others, you know, and, uh, and just his faithfulness. And, you know, maybe you're here tonight and you're go, going through a time where you're like, not sure, you know, is God going to skip me and the whole thing? He doesn't skip anybody, you know, like he, you don't have to have, you can have minus, when you come. And he is just so incredibly good. And so uh, in this season of Thanksgiving and Christmas and rejoicing, you know, I, I pray that the Lord just meets you and encourages you in amazing ways. Um, and with that, we are in tonight the book of Acts chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, you can open it to Acts chapter 9. If you need a Bible, just get the attention of one of the ushers and they will pass one off to you so that you can follow along with us in our study tonight. I'm actually going to begin reading in Acts chapter 8. Uh, no, 7. Sorry, I'm going to... I forgot where I'm reading. Where am I reading? Chap chapter 7, uh, verse 54, uh, kind of to springboard off of where we left off two weeks ago, and then, uh, and then I'm going to get into chapter 9. So I'm going to read a whole big chunk of text, then we're going to pray, and we'll get into uh, the message tonight. And so uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 54 uh, to begin tonight, it says this. It says that when they, they being the religious rulers that had put the man named Stephen on trial, it says when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, that is Stephen, the one whom has just preached, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, Stephen being the caller, and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's King James for he died. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. Now we'll skip over to our text for tonight, which is Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. So we leave Saul uh, back in verse 3 of chapter 8. We, we join Saul again in chapter uh, 9, verse 1. And it says here, it says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and desired from him letters to Damascus, that is authority from the authorities in Jerusalem, to go to Damascus, to the synagogues, so that if he found any of this way, that is Christians, believers, followers of Jesus, whether they were men or women, that he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. It is hard for you to kick against the pricks or against the goads. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will you have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it will be told you what you must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, neither did eat nor drink. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony of it and mostly that it reveals who you are to us. And so, Lord, as we uh, have sat before you tonight with our hearts open, ready to hear, we ask, Lord, that you would give us clear instruction through the text, the truth, Lord, that's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our ears are open. Let your spirit speak. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, growing up, again, outside of Rochester, I have a vivid memory uh, of a time in my childhood where my older brother, older by two years and the firstborn and stubborn one of the bunch, uh, was kicked out of the pool for some unremembered behavior. And in his rage, he went into the garage by himself and he found a bag of, garage, uh, of uh, grass seed. And he went to my mother's prized flower garden that she boasted of it being weedless uh, continually. And he dumped an entire bag of grass seed and scattered it throughout her flower garden. And then 
uh, obviously denied, and it was very obvious. I mean, grass seed, you see it in the mud, you know what it looks like, and my mother discovering it not long after uh, wanted to know who the culprit was, and he denied it, uh, never admitted it uh, until years, years later, you know, uh, it came up, and, and he said that he had done it. We knew he, that he did it, you know. Um, but, but, but like once you do that, I remember for the rest of the time that we lived in that house, there was grass in those gardens. There was no way that you were ever going to stop that grass from growing after the amount of grass seed uh, that had been sown into them. And, and I'm always amazed at, at really the power of a seed and what it is capable of doing. Because it's really not much when you just take a handful of it in your hand. It almost seems like it's just immaterial. It's unimpressive. It's lifeless. It's just this mass of of stuff. It might as well be rocks or fiber or uh, just something. You know, it's nothing. And, And so we dismiss it. It's dry. It's dead. It's somewhat useless. But just under the surface of what appears to be nothing, there's an embryo and there's a food source. And then it's encased and wrapped in a seed coat. And if you take that seed that seems to be nothing and you give it the right amount of moisture and air and light and contact with the soil, that lifeless seed will wake up and it will germinate and it will become a living organism that will then grow and mature and multiply and make more seeds. And when you think about that process, those of you that have vegetable gardens that you sow each year, you put the seed in the soil and you look at it and you think, is this even going to work? I mean, I I just put stuff in the dirt and then you come back a few months later and you have this amazing crop that's beginning to grow. It's the power of a seed. Well, the Bible opens up for us the idea that seeds exist in more than just the physical. In other words, there is a type of seed that the Bible talks about that is not a physical seed that you put into the ground, but it speaks of seeds as ideas, as beliefs, as thoughts, as words. And and all of these things, ideas and beliefs and thoughts and words that are planted inside the soil of a human soul, they germinate and they become actions and experiences. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 13, when he was teaching, he told a parable. We we know it as the parable of the sower. And he says that a man went forth to sow, and he sowed seed on the ground. And then he talked about different types of soil that that seed fell into. And he kind of gives an application, and that's a totally different study. So you can read Matthew 13 if you're more curious about what Jesus taught. But his disciples had no clue what Jesus was getting at and why he was taking time talking about gardening and seeds. So they asked Jesus and they said, declare to us, what does it mean? And Jesus said to them, he said that the one who sows the seed is the one who sows the word. In another gospel, he calls it the message of the kingdom. In other words, Jesus was saying that the message of the kingdom is like a seed. And when it goes into the ear and into the heart of a human person, it works just like a seed. It seems to be nothing, but when it germinates, it shows itself to be more than nothing. It does something there. Jesus went on to say in the same parable that there are other types of seed that are competing seeds. In other words, there are thorns, things that will also get into a life and will germinate and grow into something, but those are some things that are undesirable. 
And so the idea is that there are seeds that are spiritual, seeds that are not physical, that when they get into a human life, they become something, all right? This is consistent throughout the Bible, okay? So ideas contain beliefs, just like the seed contains an embryo in a food source, an idea contains a belief. And when that belief is germinated in a life, it creates a lifestyle. Let me give you some examples. As a young person, you may hear someone say, money makes the world go round. That's a seed. That can get lodged somewhere in your understanding, and you can grow up thinking, living according to the truth of that statement that money makes the world go round. And so lodged in you is the ideal in the worldview that money might be more important than it is. You may hear the phrase, he who or she who dies with the most toys wins. And you think, well, I like toys. That makes sense to me. That's not a hard seed to germinate. And you live your whole life acting out according to the statement of the seed that was sown in you at some point in your youth. Another might hear, if you eat that, you'll get fat. And that becomes a seed that gets lodged in and it does something. It grows into something that you never thought that it could or intended that it would. And it results in a lifestyle or a worldview that may or may not be true. If you blank, you will be happy. If you have this, if you experience this, if you obtain or if you live here, you will be happy. It's a seed. It's an idea. And it gets into the heart. It gets into the mind and it becomes something. Now, the most powerful seed in the entire universe is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no greater seed than that. Okay. And Jesus was saying that is the seed that the sower did sow. And it's different from every other seed. It's different from every other idea, ideal, worldview, or any other thing that could be given. And that is for this reason alone. is because the gospel of Jesus Christ, when it germinates in a life, it has power to produce something that's lasting and actually valuable. It produces eternal life. It produces the power of a changed life. It produces the power to overrule every other competing seed that has germinated in the life. And therefore, it is a more powerful seed than anything else. Okay? So it is different. It is the seed, listen to me, it is the seed of Christ being sown into a human life. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, in this season that we're in right now, we're celebrating Christmas, we are remembering how the seed of Jehovah, the seed of God, was planted in a human woman. It was planted in Mary. And the genetic material of God was mixed with the genetic material of Mary. And what was birthed out of the planting of that seed was a manifested Jesus in the world. Now, that's a very living illustration of exactly what the gospel does, okay? The gospel, the seed of the message of the kingdom, when it germinates and comes alive in a human, it is the genetic material of God mixing with the genetic material of the individual, that would be you, and the result is to be an expression of Jesus to a lost and dying world, okay? It's what Paul meant when he said, 
Christ in you, the hope of glory, the mystery of godliness. It's again what Paul would write later to the Corinthians when he'd say, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All old things are passed away. All things become new. Jesus would say in John chapter 3, verse 3, he would say that except a man, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This has to happen in a life. Paul would write to the Galatian church in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, and he would use these words. He would say, my little children of whom I labor in birth again until Christ be formed in you. There was an understanding in him that when the gospel gets in and germinates, there is something else that is born in the life. Christ is formed in that life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, the apostle Paul said this. He said of himself, who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. He says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. In other words, my whole mission, would say Paul later in his life, is to sow the seed of the gospel into the hearts of humans so that Christ can be formed in them when God brings that seed to life. And so the gospel is an extremely powerful thing. The result of the gospel germinating in a heart is that it makes your life a unique expression of the one true God. Because half of the expression is God, and the other half is the genetic material that makes up you, that is the sanctified version of you. He unites with your personality, and he sanctifies it, and then he lights it on fire to make you a witness of himself. Very much like when God came to Mary, Jesus was born, that's literal, in a spiritual sense, when the seed of God gets in you. It mixes with you, your person. God sanctifies what's in you. He lights it on fire with his Holy Spirit, and you become a witness of Jesus in the world because Christ lives in you. He takes everything that has grown up in your life prior to your knowing him, prior to Jesus coming in. He sanctifies it. He cleanses it. He redeems it. He refines it. And then he ignites it as a manifestation of his person, purpose, and power. And so here's what happens. Is what was once a problem with perfectionism in you is now excellence without anxiety. What was once OCD in you is now the element or the, uh, the attribute of being thorough without rethinking things 17 times. A fear of loneliness drives you to find the place of abiding in him and the loneliness is gone because you know him. The craving for adventure and adrenaline is now radical faith and not rebellion. Pride, when he comes in, is turned into strength without arrogance and it makes your value infinite before him because he sanctifies and redeems you and he makes you an expression of himself in the world that only you can be. Now, it's also powerful for a second reason and here's why is because your unique expression of Christ in you and what he's doing in your life has its own seed to be sown in other people as well. God takes what he formed in you and then he uses it to reseed his life in lost people. He makes us a testimony of himself and we have the power, the entrustment of taking that seed 
with a privilege and a calling and a promise that if we sow it, God will make it increase. Even as Paul said, I have sowed, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Okay, why do I say that and introduce it this way? Because a seed has been sown in the heart of this man, Saul. We know him as Paul because his name will be changed to Paul. It was a really powerful seed. It was the life seed of a man named Stephen. We know of Stephen from our study last time that he was a saved man. He was a Grecian Jew, meaning that he was brought up somehow in the Greek culture, but he was Jewish by uh, nationality. We know that Christ was alive in Stephen. We also know that Stephen had a massive appetite for and an understanding of the scriptures. We know that Stephen had an ability to communicate the things of God very clearly. We know that, G- that Stephen had a personality that radiated Jesus. That when they saw him, they saw Jesus in his face. We know that Stephen was driven and gifted by God to serve. And we know that Stephen was endued with power to do miraculous things. All of this because we're told these things uh, back in Acts chapter 7 concerning Stephen, that he was doing miracles and mighty things. Now, interestingly, it doesn't tell us any of the miracles uh, that Stephen did. But not all miracles are physical miracles. Did you know that? Sometimes there are, are other types of miracles. I mean, one of the miracles that Stephen did is he got Grecian Jews and Hebrew Jews to get along with each other. And sometimes it's miraculous to get two different types of Christians that have opposing viewpoints on things to love each other. That's, a mir- that's miraculous, right? I mean, just think about it in your own life. Do you love people that don't agree with you, even in the church? But he did it. He took Democrats and Republicans, and he got them to love each other. That's a miracle. <laughs> in a nutshell, Stephen was spiritually healthy. And just quickly, I just want you to take the quick checklist. Are you spiritually healthy? What made Stephen spiritually healthy is that he had an appetite for and an understanding of Scripture. Do you have an appetite for the Word of God? In true honesty, like is your, is, are, you, are you hungry to know more of God? Do you have an appetite for Him and are you hungry for the Word of God? If you are, it's health. If not, check. Do you have an ability that God has given you in something that you can recognize that this is not of myself, this is an ability that God has given to me, uh, uh, an entrustment? Do you aware of it? He had an ability to communicate. What's your ability? Do you have a personality that radiates Jesus? Is it when people get around you, you are, as Paul would say, the aroma of Christ to some that stinks because they don't want Jesus And to others, it's glory because there's something heavenly about your personality. Do you have a personality that radiates Jesus? Are you using the gifts that God gave you and are you driven to serve him? And are you endued with power? Is there supernatural things happening in your life? And do you have the ability to love people that aren't like you? And Stephen possessed all of it. He was a very spiritually healthy man. And I think from time to time, it's good to kick the wheels on our own faith a little bit and ask the question is, am I spiritually healthy? And Stephen was. But interestingly, okay, this spiritually healthy man, Stephen, was thrown in the mud. He was accused of lying concerning Moses and other things. He was arrested by the Jewish authorities. He was arraigned by them and put on trial. And you wonder... Because we know the outcome, he ultimately was uh, kind of 
shut down and stoned and killed. You wonder, why did God allow a spiritually healthy man to be thrown in the mud like this? The answer is this, because seeds belong in the mud. That's where seeds work. That's where they work, okay? So this event that happened to Stephen that, that resulted in his death actually was an opportunity for Stephen to witness or to sow the seed of the gospel in the ears and in the hearts of his accusers and those that were antagonistic towards the message of the gospel towards Christ, okay? The opportunity was this, is that the people that were accusing Stephen for the moment of his trial, they opened up their hearts to hear what he had to say. And there was two reasons why they did it. Number one was to silence him. And the other one was to satisfy either their curiosity or their criticism. All right. So they wanted to silence him so they would listen to him in order to find the hole and shut down his testimony. Or on the other side, there's a part of every one of us that is curious even about what the other side believes. And so some of it was, what does this guy actually have to say? Okay, I want to know, or at least I want to be able to justify my actions in being antagonistic for it. And so they open their hearts, albeit only for a moment, in order to hear what Stephen has to say, and Stephen drives the seed deep. I mean, he goes in and he talks about Abraham and Joseph and Jacob and David, and, and he just gives it to him. He brings the word of God and just like a sword, he penetrates it into their heart and with truth and persuasion and passion, he convinces them of the things that he believes. And then he, I don't want to say twists the knife because God's not really, I don't think he's violent like that. But what he does is he brings it to conviction is at the end of his sermon, he says, you guys are hard-hearted and stiff-necked and you've stoned the prophets and killed Jesus and what of God have you not opposed? He brings conviction and with that, he seals the testimony. He drives it into the deepest place of them to the place where they shut their eyes, they shut their ears, they close their hearts and they kill Stephen while he's declaring faith and forgiveness. But the seed got in, and there's nothing they can do now to get it out. And the seed is lodged into Saul's heart. It went in through his eyes. He saw Stephen, that his face was like an angel. It went into his ears. He heard the message and the passion of the message that was given. And it went into his conscience because he's not now able to shake the guilt he possesses because he was the one that ordered the death of this man, Stephen. And this seed lodged in Saul began a war in his heart between what he wants to be right and what deep down he knows is right. Anybody know that war? The war between what you want to be right and what you know is right. And so the seed is sown right into the dirtiest place in Saul's darkened heart. And it's in there deep. Do you know that seeds need dirt? Seeds do not germinate if they are not in dirt. They, I mean, in a wet paper, you're saying, wet paper towel. Okay, it's not going to survive there, all right? If a seed is going to survive, a seed needs dirt. Dirt is important. And listen, everyone has dirt. Do you know that? Okay, if you don't think you have dirt, I have a challenge for you. Run for office. 
And you, not only you, but the whole world is going to find out that you've got dirt, okay? But listen, we all lament, right? We lament the dirt that's in us. We think about, you know, the things that, that we've done in our past, the things that happened to us in the past that resulted in things that we became. We, we, we lament the things that we are. We lament the mistakes that we made raising our kids or that we made in our marriage or in our previous marriage. We relent our bad choices and the, 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 the things it, because we say it's dirty. It just created all this dirt inside my life. Okay, but listen, the dirt in your life is what makes up the fertile ground that causes the seed of the gospel to germinate, and without dirt, seeds don't germinate, okay? When seeds meet soil, you get germination, and when the seed of the gospel gets into your soul, it germinates into salvation. Do you understand? What we have is we have Saul at his absolute worst. The seed is in the dirtiest, darkest place, and the seed is about to germinate, And that's what happens in Acts chapter 9. It says, verse 1, Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, that he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Where we pick up with Saul, now at this point, we see Saul that he is absolutely at his worst. He is losing his mind. He is so filled with anger and rage and hatred towards Christians. He is getting every bit of credential that he can, every bit of justification he can to just wreak havoc upon the churches. He doesn't care how far he has to go, how uncomfortable it is, what he has to give up to do it. He is on a a war path, a rampage against God and against the Christians, the disciples of Jesus, and he will stop at nothing to shut this message down. It says there that he was yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter. That means that he was so dark at this point in his existence that he would breathe in clean air and he would turn it into filth before it came out. It would go in clean and then he would use it to just, I hate him. I want him dead. I want that name to be blotted out. I don't care what they would like on face of an angel. I'll smash it with a bat. You know, here's this Pharisee of Pharisees, the one who's righteous, Saul, The the Pharisee, the man, and here he is filled with such bitterness. He's at his absolute worst. He's sinning more than ever. He's plagued by the misery of his sin. He's trying to bury and cover his sin, to comfort his sin with more sin. You ever been there? Remember that? (laughs) You know, when you tried to cover your sin with more sin? This did something for him. You know, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, when he would talk about the, the result of the grace of God in the life, He would come to the conclusion that the love of God shed abroad in the heart, that it comes into the heart when we are at our worst possible place. He would say say it this way, Romans 5 verse 8, he said, but God commends or demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He goes on a few verses later to say that while we were yet his enemies. So he's not trying to sugarcoat anything. He's saying that when you were at your absolute worst place, the dirtiest, darkest place, that's the place where God met you. And we see the truth of it when we look at just the first verse of Acts chapter 9. He was at his worst place, and that's the place where God ultimately met him at his worst. Notice what it says in verse 3. Acts chapter 9, verse 3. It says that as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. Here's the word, ready? It says, and suddenly. 
suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Do you know that this suddenly is supernatural? I mean, if you think about a seed for a minute, in that one moment, that sudden moment when it goes from a lifeless seed to now something breaks through the seed shell, and all of a sudden that something that was lifeless is now alive. There's a suddenly, there's something that happens. And there's a suddenly here that happens for Saul that's supernatural. But understand that the suddenly is not salvation. The suddenly is an opportunity. And let it be known, let it be known as a truth to the people of God once and forever that God is willing to meet every human being. And God does meet every human being sometime in the course of their life with a suddenly. There is a moment when God will give every human being an opportunity to receive the seed or the germination of the seed unto eternal life. Some do and some don't, but everyone gets a suddenly. Well, Saul's suddenly happens, and it says in verse 4, it says that he fell to the earth, and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Okay, I want to tell you about Saul's suddenly, because he defines it for us. What happened in the moment when Paul had the opportunity to receive Christ and make a choice to follow him? It says that the moment came in a single moment, it says that he fell to the earth. We know from the context of reading the whole story that there was a light that was so bright that it blinded him. It took away his faculty and his ability to see. And it overpowered him in such a way that he found himself on the ground, unable to move and unable to see. Saul's suddenly is that by the grace of God, he had a moment where everything was taken away from him and he was left on the ground completely helpless and vulnerable. Now, who would ever say that that's a good thing? But it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to him because it became an opportunity for him to not only see what he was apart from all of his clothing, but to apprehend or be apprehended by the God who could save him and actually make his life worth something. When Saul fell to the ground, in that moment, he was stripped clean of all of his platforms, his vehicles, his devices, his degrees, his accomplishments, his credibilities. Even the letters that he had just had signed, they were still wet with the ink of the signatures of the high priest. Even those things couldn't help him in this moment. He's empty, he's helpless, he's grounded, he's exposed, and he's vulnerable. It's his suddenly. It's the moment he has now to make a decision. Now, I want to pause for a minute and, and just make a comment because we're living in some crazy days, aren't we? And everyone, I, I'm going on a limb, but I think it's safe. Everyone is angry at someone. Are, are you, I, honestly, are you angry at someone? Is there someone that, that you are angry with right now? Maybe someone, it, it's connected to the education system, big pharma, the CDC. I think there's some people angry with some people there a political party, a banking system? I mean, is there someone in the world right now that if you could push a button and no one would know you pushed it and it would just make a person go away forever and no one would know you pushed it and there would be no ramifications or dominoes or ripples and you just push that button and that person could just disappear forever. Is there a person that comes into your mind that you wish you had that button, you would hit it with a hammer if you had it, you know, you would jump on it, you know, you would, you know, because we're, we're living in a time where things are very, very charged up. Let me ask a question. If you had the ringleader of your frustration, the person 
that you are the most angry with right now, and that could be the head of a state, could be you name it, a person you've never even met before, but they're making your life miserable from afar. If you had that person right now, blinded, grounded, exposed, defenseless on the ground in front of you, and you could do whatever you wanted or say whatever you wanted to that person, what would you do or what would you say? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Because what we have here is we have Saul of Tarsus, who is God's enemy number one at this point in his, in his life. All right, he is the one that is causing more problems for the kingdom of God and the person of God and the people of God than anyone else. He is the ringleader against God. He's responsible for more misery, more death, and more trouble to the purposes of God on earth than anyone else. I mean, you take Saul out of the equation and God's prayer inbox is cut in half. Because all the prayers are like, God, get rid of this guy. Deliver us from him. He's, he's ruining our, our whole thing. What would you do if you had that person in front of you? What would God do if he had that person in front of him? Well, Jesus, verse 4, he asks a question. Saul falls to the earth. He hears a voice saying unto him, and it's Jesus. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's that's. A very, it's an invitation to dialogue, but it's a valid question. I mean, persecuting. In other words, why are you wreaking havoc? Why are you hurting my people? Why are you coming against me? What is your problem with me? Why are you doing that? Now, I think God would ask that question to, to a lot of people, but maybe he'd phrase it a different way. He wouldn't say, are you persecuting? But to some, he would just say, why are you resisting me? Like, why are you resisting the, the, the people that I'm sending into your life to try to persuade you and talk to you and reason with you about this. And why are you resisting me? To others, he would say, why are you mocking me? Like, why do you think it's like in vogue to just take shots at, at, at God? Like, why are you mocking God? To others, he would say, why are you marginalizing me? Why are you trying to pretend I don't exist or that the evidence isn't there that, that there is a creator and that there is an account and that there, there is good and evil and that things matter and decisions matter? Like, why are you marginalizing? Push it off to the side. Now, that's a fair question, okay? And, and, and for some people, they could actually answer that question. They could say, well, God, to be totally truthful with you, I have met a lot of people that claim to follow you, and they have weaponized you in such a way that I want really nothing to do with you because of the level of pain that it brings up in my heart to think about it. I have been manipulated. I have been robbed. I have been cheated. I have been used. I have been abused and lied to in your name, by people that claim to be your name, and under the surface were something they totally were not. And so when I think about God, or I think about religion, all that comes into my mind is those things, and I want nothing to do with you. Now, that wasn't Saul, but that is the answer for so many more. But I think Jesus asks a fair question. He says, hey, why are you persecuting me? Okay. Now, what I love about the Lord is what he does with his enemies is that he doesn't condemn, he doesn't wipe out, he engages in dialogue. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, God says this, after talking to Israel and saying, you guys are so sinful that you can't even see straight. And he, here's his conclusion, Isaiah 1, 18. He says, come, let us reason together. 
He says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they'll be white as wool. If you're willing and obedient, you'll eat of the good of the land. He's saying, listen, just let me reason with you about your mentality and your mindset here. Because you're making bad decisions and you're making your life harder when you don't need to have your life being harder. It could be a whole lot easier. Let's reason. That's what God does. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God asked a question. He said, where are you? It was a call to make an assessment. Where are you at? How are you doing? Is it working out for you? When Cain killed his brother Abel, God didn't come in with a sword and wipe out Cain. God asked him a question. He said, where is Abel, your brother? He tried to bring him into dialogue because God is always trying to restore. He's always trying to reach out. Even Jonah, who was the prophet of God, who became for some reason resistant to the call of God upon his life, came to a place where he ran away from God and God began to reason with him about the reason why he ran away. And God did it with this amazing thing. He grew a gourd and then he caused a worm to eat it. And he's like, hey, listen, look, there's 180,000 kids in Nineveh that don't know their right hand from the left. Do you want me to destroy them? He reasons. He's a reasonable God. And here with his worst enemy, he comes in and he just begins to reason with him, asking him these questions and just saying, hey, why is it that you're persecuting me? Now, verse five, Saul gives the correct reply. He responds perfectly to the question of Jesus. He says, who are you? Everybody say that. That's right. Who are you, Lord? And that makes all the difference, okay? He doesn't say, who were you represented to be to me by the people in my life? Who did my dad exemplify you to be in my life? Who did the crooked church that was only in it for the money and the prestige and the fame and the, and the game of it all, who did they portray? No, 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 no. He said, who are you? I need to know who you are. Are you that? Or are you something totally other? Who are you, Lord? That's the right question. It's a fair question, and it's a revealing question. If God is misrepresented to you in some way, then shame on the person that misrepresented God to you in some way. But if you don't ask the question, who are you, God? Then shame on you for using their misrepresentation as an excuse instead of finding out who God actually is and not who he was represented falsely to you to be. This is also by Saul asking this question extremely um, revealing because he reveals in this that he doesn't actually know God. I mean, for all of his study and all of his declaration, all of his, you know, attainments, he doesn't know God. Did you know that knowing about God does not make you know God? Do you know growing up in church? Do you know that you could be a Pharisee? Do you know that you could be a leader and a ruler over an entire religious system and still not know God? Because that's what Saul was. He didn't know the Lord, okay? And the only way that you can know him is if he's in you and he walks in you. And Saul did not have that. And so Saul asked the question, he says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord answers it. He doesn't say, you don't have the right to know me. If you earn it, you can know me. If you crawl up the stairs in, in the Vatican and bloody your knees, then maybe you can know me. You, you, that's, no. He asked the question, who are you? And the Lord answers quickly. The Lord said, I am Jesus. Whom you're persecuting, 
And then he says this, makes an assessment of Paul's life. He said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. It's hard for you. Okay, Paul doesn't know Jesus, but Jesus knows Paul. In other words, God has taken the time to look into the soul of this man, Saul, and see the struggle that he is going through internally. And he sees the depths of of where the wickedness is coming from, where the war is coming from. And in one sentence, he lets Saul know that he knows him in the deepest place. You don't know me, but I know you. And it's hard for you. How is it working out for you? Now listen, because Jesus knows Saul, this is important, he meets him with compassion instead of with judgment and vengeance. He took the time to understand where Saul was coming from, and thus he's able to engage him in a spirit of compassion rather than wrath. Do you know that understanding is the wellspring of compassion? When you understand where a person is coming from and why they think the way they think, it helps you to have compassion on them rather than to to throw hatred at them. In a word, God learned Paul's language and he met him in the place where he could speak it to him. Listen to Proverbs 21.2. Proverbs 21.2 says that every way of man is right in his own eyes. In other words, you can just generally make the assumption when you see someone doing something, no matter what it is, in their mind, they're doing what's right. Now, you may have information that says that is absolutely wrong what you're doing right now. But that person, from where they're coming from, they're doing what's right in their own eyes. Okay, so exploration of what makes a person tick creates understanding that results in compassion. What does that mean? It means that if you want to be Christ-like, if you want to do it the way Jesus does it, he doesn't call us to condemn people that don't believe like us or think like us or see the world like us. He calls us to understand where they're coming from and why they see things the way they do. You're a conservative. You don't like progressives. But do you understand where they're coming from or do you just see from where you're standing that it's not right? And if they don't speak your language, then you've got nothing for them. Can you speak theirs? If you're a progressive and you say, the religious right is driving me crazy, I love Jesus, but I can't stand these people. Do you understand where they're coming from and the why? And maybe you even see the flaws and what's right and what's wrong about it. You're a vaxxer and you can't stand the anti-vaxxer. They're ruining the world. They're jeopardizing my safety. You're an anti-vaxxer. And you look at the vaxxer and you say, science is science. And there's this war. But where's the understanding that underneath it all, everyone wants the same thing. You are a vaxxer because you want to be safe. I'm an anti-vaxxer because I want to be safe. And can't we see that we're on the same team ultimately? It's understanding. All understanding brings compassion. Gun rights versus gun control. Christians want Paul dead, and they called him the devil. God was looking at him, and he's saying, this is the guy that's going to save the Gentile world. God saw deeper than what people were willing to understand, and so God dealt with him in an entirely different way, okay? God saw redemption. 
Are you sure that what you're fighting against right now is not something that God is about to use to save the world? Because that's what God does over and over again. Do you realize that God used Joseph? I'm talking about Joseph, the son of Jacob, back in Egypt like thousands of years ago. Do you realize that God used Joseph to impose a record tax rate of 20% upon all of Egypt universally, and then it was the resultant universal basic income that he instituted as mandated policy that saved the world. Now, you go argue about whether that was right or wrong, and I guarantee it'll start a civil war in a church. But that's what happened. God used it to save the world. And how do you know that God isn't going to use something that you don't understand to save the world. <laughs> that one question that Jesus asked Paul revealed to him that he was understood and that God was not against him. Watch Paul's response in verse 6. I love it. It says that he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will you have me to do? And the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and it will, told you, it will be told you what you must do. Do you realize that in one moment, he was breathing out slaughter and th threatenings against the disciples of the Lord. And one moment later, he was saying, Lord, what will you have me to do? Does anybody else see the amazing contrast between those two things? Something changed. Something happened in the heart of this man. He went from rock hard to pure mush in a moment. It's the power of a seed. That's what a seed can do in a human soul. I believe at this moment right here is when Paul was saved when his name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life and written in heaven. I mean, I, we could argue and say, well, no, that was before the foundation of the world. Yes, I'm saying that when, 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 when events and history caught up with what God already knew was going to happen, it was this moment here that Paul was actually saved. He confesses Christ as Lord, and he surrenders his will to God's. And that's what salvation is. That's how the seed germinates in the heart. It's when God's seed aligns with your will, and you Submit to his lordship and then surrender to his plan. That's what salvation is. All they that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, he has a long way to go to get back up on his feet and to get healed of his blindness and to be baptized and anointed and filled with the Holy Spirit. But at this moment, Saul's saved. And I can relate to that because that, that's a lot like my experience. My sinner's prayer was me weeping in my 1987 Pontiac Grand Prix and saying, Jesus, I don't know if you're real, but if you are, I need you now in my life and I'll do anything that you ask me to do, even if it means shave my head, wear a robe and be a monk. <laughs> and that was my sinner's prayer. I didn't know the official words that I was supposed to say that I believe, you know, in the whole thing. But I, I know that he saved me in the moment that I said those words because what happened suddenly to me in that moment, in that moment, is that I went from hating the Bible to being hungry for the Bible. It happened in an instant. I wanted to know what the Bible said. I went from listening to hard rock on the radio to listening to homilies on the radio. It happened in an instant, in a moment. I still had a couple of months of things that had to happen for me to get up on my feet and to realize like, yeah, I'm saved. I raised my hand seven times in church every time the altar call was given for a couple of months. Like, is, did it take? Is it real? Listen, it took. It took in the car for Saul. It takes here on the ground. He says, Lord, what would you have me to do? And the first step God gives him is to arise, go into the city, and from there it will be shown you what you want to do. Now, we are almost out of time, so I'm not going to talk about situational blindness, but I will leave you curious. But God leaves him blind for a number of days, not knowing what's going to happen next. Anybody get frustrated with God ever? Because 
He gives you one thing to do, but then he doesn't tell you the next things to do, and he makes you wait for a while. That's exactly what happens to Saul. He has to wait three days in blindness, wondering if what happened on the road was actually real, while God remains silent for a season because God is doing other things. And that is something that God does in our lives. You cannot escape it. It's just what he does. It is situational blindness. He gives everyone else the ability to manage money, but he makes you blind and you don't know how to do it. He gives everyone else social skills and you can't talk to another person and sound like an intelligent human being to save your life. It's situational blindness. And you say, God, why are you doing this? And he says, I'm doing this because I'm setting things up in a certain way. And if I give you the skills you don't have, you'll ruin it. And Saul was a doer. And if he could do at this moment, he would do. So God kept him in a place where he could not do so that God could orchestrate things the way that he wanted to. And Saul's plan involved something that God was doing in someone else's life, a man named Ananias. So he leaves Saul in darkness for these three days. Meanwhile, Acts chapter 9, verse 10 says this. It says that there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prays. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Now, Ananias, here's what Jesus says. Ananias is a deeply spiritual, committed, and sensitive man. And he hears God's call to go and pray for this man, Saul, but he knows who Saul is. And so he engages in dialogue with God. And it says, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many or heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on your name. But the Lord said unto him, go your way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him the great things that he must suffer for my name's sake. Now think about the entrustment that God is giving to this man, Ananias. He's asking him to do something that he absolutely does not want to do, that he does not feel comfortable doing, and that he does not feel safe doing. And he has not only the ability to disobey God by not going, but he also has the ability to sabotage the plan of God by not going or by going and in some way not doing what God asked him to do. Are you spiritually trustworthy enough that God could send you to the house of your worst enemy and the person that's done you the most damage and represent God rightly there? That's exactly what Ananias does. You are a healthcare worker who has just lost your job because of a mandate handed down by the president. And the Lord speaks to you in a vision and he says, go to the house of Biden. <laughs> Make it real. Would you say, all right, Lord, I'm going. go to the White House, get a plane ticket. Do I have to wear a mask on the plane, Lord? You know? <laughs> That's what Ananias does. So Ananias went his way and he entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto you in the way as you came has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales and he received sight forthwith and he arose and was baptized. And when he had received 
food, he was strengthened. And Saul was with, or for certain days, with the disciples that were at Damascus. He's saved. He's born again. He's converted. The seed has germinated. It has happened. God has moved in this man's life. The physical catches up with the spiritual. He's baptized, and a new man raises up out of the soil. It's the power of a seed. There are two places, I would say predominantly, where you see seed sown effectively into human hearts or where you see seeds germinating in human hearts. Don't get me wrong. It can happen anywhere. It does happen. It happens at train stations, on street corners, on telephone calls late at night. It happens all over the place. But predominantly, I would say there were two places when people open up their hearts and allow the seed of the gospel to get into their life. Number one is when they fall. It's when they have that suddenly experience like Saul and all of a sudden the bottom drops out and everything that they're standing on or leaning on or trusting in fails them and they realize their own vulnerability and that they absolutely have nothing and are helpless. That is one time that you will see uh, someone open their heart and receive seed or you see seed germinate. The other time is in church. And that's kind of odd to think about, that they could be so different. You know, one is like absolute misery and suffering, and the other one is just in church when everybody's just, hey, here's why. Because when a person comes and they sit in church, they are much like Saul and the other Pharisees listening to Stephen's sermon. They want to either silence or satisfy the thing that is being spoken, and so they will anonymously sit, apparently very closed off to the things that are being spoken. But internally, there's a curiosity. Is this really real? Is this person for real? Like, are they actually going to try and tell me that this is true? I'm going to listen to what they say, and I'm going to shut it right down. I'm going to find the hole in it, and that's it. Or maybe, is it real? Could it be true? At least then I'll know. There's a curiosity that can exist inside a person as they list, uh, listen in those things. I, I don't know where you are here tonight, but here's what I'm going to assume. I'm going to assume that on a Wednesday night right now, in this season of life, if you're here, you're probably saved. Most of you probably already know Jesus. He's alive in your heart. I'm also going to assume that there's some of you here that aren't. Some of you here that you don't know him, you haven't had the seed of God's work in your life come to pass. And I want you to know this. I want you to know that God is a reasonable God, that he's not looking to condemn you. He's not trying to make your life miserable. He's not trying to come down on you in some way, okay? He's a God that's full of kindness. He's full of mercy, and he's full of truth. He won't force you to accept what he offers and what he did for you, but he will ask you the question and engage you and say, how is what you're doing working out for you now? How is it working? Is it working? And he will speak your language. He understands your why, and he knows you even if you don't know him, and he is the only one that can control the goads in your life. The goads. Those things that are pointing, poking you, saying what you're doing isn't working. 
What you're resisting isn't working. The anger is bigger than what you can control. The lust in your heart is going to destroy you. The desires that you have will never be fulfilled by the things that this world can fill it with. The habits that you have are too strong for you. The pride that you lean on and live by is more destructive than it is helping you. And your misery is multiplying and your apathy is growing. You're losing your ability to feel. But in the moment that you will open your heart and hear the word of Jesus speaking to you like he spoke to Saul, and he says, arise. The seed that's been planted can germinate when you respond. And I just pray that maybe for somebody here tonight, my voice is that voice. It's the voice of Jesus encountering everything that you've heard and seen and experienced and what you've been thinking, what's been going through your mind as you lay your head on the pillow at night and you can't find one shred of peace. Did you hear the voice of a Savior that literally wants to bring his genetic material into your heart and make you a new creation and do for you what you can't do for yourself, make of you what you can't make of yourself, remove from you what you can't remove yourself and to do something with your life that makes you an expression of him in a way that only you can. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Why are you resisting me? Why are you mocking and marginalizing me? Why are you pushing me out of the outside when I am the one that made you and I'm to be in the epicenter? And life begins where you know me. Do you know him tonight? Will you let the seed of the gospel germinate and do its work in your life? For the majority of of us that are here tonight and we are saved, I ask you this question. Are you healthy? Have the other seeds grown up so much, so great, and and so, so, so thick that it's choking out the life of God in you? Other things have taken center stage and your appetite for the things of God are gone Sometimes you've got to take a rototiller to the ground. And you've got to say, Lord, refresh me, revive me, fill me again with your Holy Spirit. Make your word come to life in me again. Bring me back to the cross and to Jesus and help me to see everything that you've done in my life. And forgive me, Lord, for straying and becoming so far from you, so hardened. Father, we pray tonight as we consider, Lord, the power of a seed the power of your word and what it can do in a life. And we're asking you, Father, that you would meet each one of us where we are, that you'd show yourself to be the one who has power to save, power to heal, power to redeem, power to restore, power to renew, to refresh and revive. So help us, Lord. Fill us, Lord. Save us, Lord. And for those that don't know you here, Lord, I pray that even now they would say, Lord, what would you have me to do? That there would be surrender and confession and salvation. So hear us, Lord. Meet us in this place. Thank you for your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, Leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.